Welcome to the Israel Bible Podcast. My name is Cindy Parker. I am an author, a speaker, and the professor of Holy Land Studies at the Israel Bible Center. I am passionate about reading the Bible in the physical, historical, and cultural context of its day. But what I really love doing is having geeky conversations with people about all kinds of things. In this podcast, I'd like to invite you to join me as I sit down each week with other faculty members of IBC to discover new aspects of the Bible. Ah, these are some of my favorite dialogues because as a modern audience reading an ancient text, we know that the Bible does not need to be rewritten, but it needs to be reread. As this episode is being released, we are in the middle of the Christian Advent season. Last week on the podcast, we talked about discovering the person Luke through the way the Gospel of Luke and Acts is written. And why did Luke choose to include or not include something? How did he talk about the Roman Empire? All of those kinds of fascinating topics that was in last week's episode. This week, we're going to talk about how Luke describes Jesus's birth narrative with a focus on the real physical context. And to do that, I am going to bring in one of my friends and mentors, Dr. Paul Wright. He recently retired as the president of Jerusalem University College, which is located in Jerusalem. I have learned so much from Dr. Wright over the years, and I can partially credit him for infusing me with a love for the land as a character in the biblical text. In our conversation, he told me about how his own family heritage is one of farmers and teachers. And he told me how that infused how he reads the Bible. Everybody's hands were deep into the soil, yep. whether it be in Sweden, Germany, England, or the US, deep into the soil. And the analogy, the, the idiom, the comparison, just lends itself very much one to the next. Absolutely. And growing and developing in slow growth and watering and all of this stuff that we use idiomatically for life has real context behind it, no question about it. So uh, intuitively brought up with both of those in mind and they, they mesh, especially when we're talking about a text like the Bible that is essentially in a book to a community that is village and agriculture life as a whole. The big cities are exceptions in the book. They're the famous ones like Jerusalem, but most everybody's in the town and, and getting their feet and fingers dirty. Yeah. I'm attracted to the parts, Cindy, in the Bible that are agricultural, small village based, actually. And the, you know, the way that Isaiah uses language of the field to talk about bigger things, or Jeremiah does, or Amos, Amos does. And it's very natural to them. You know, the way Deuteronomy, which is a book that we both no. Yep. Yay, uh, you, you better than most people I know. Yeah, you better than most people I know. Is totally land-based. Taking taking Torah, which in Exodus and Leviticus seems to be a bit more, you know, ritualistic or cultic or legal in some way. And Deuteronomy just drives it into the ground in a good sense. Yeah. Yep. Where people are actually living. And and these are the books that I like. 
we went on and on for a while, actually, as people with a shared interest normally do. And we were talking about why geography is influential in forming our theology, even with texts like the Psalms, which people like to say can be sung by any of us and in any place. And while that is true to an extent, the physical place described in the Psalms is still important. And as you've said, place matters. There, 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 there's a context there that needs to be seen to understand the real energy of the songs of ascent, number one. But number two, and I think maybe this is, this is, this is equally or even more significant. If we don't allow the songs or other parts of the Bible to have that context as part of the information of what it means, We've divorced it from its reality. And if it's divorced from its reality, how do I know that it was speaking even to them, let alone to me? So the skill I think we have to learn is I need to learn as much or know as much as I possibly can about their real life context to see how it works so that I can trust then that it's going to work in my real life context. That's the bridge we have to make. Um, the American geographer, Carl Ortwin Sauer, who we quote here in class whenever I can, said the most difficult task in historical geography or human geography is to see the land through the eyes of its former inhabitants. All right? That's what we have to do with the Bible. Let it have the weight and authority that it has in its place. Only then are we going to be able to know how to make it relevant today? Otherwise, just pick and choose whatever you want, and then why bother? You see, why bother? So that's the hard thing, and that involved so the, so the language and the text and the culture and the context and everything else. We have to we have to get down to see as much as we can. Now, I promised you some text from Luke. So let's see how the land was seen through the eyes of its former inhabitants. It takes practice, and it takes noticing the small details. So Luke 2, in, you know, and we're all reading this in churches right now because of Advent. But we get in verse 8, this idea, well, it says in the same region, so we're already in Bethlehem, in the same region, there were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks by night. And then the part we always focus on is the angels who come and appear, and it's it's amazing. But in that verse 8, given the context, the agricultural calendar, the geography of Bethlehem, there's so much information here. So yeah, what do we understand about the time period of the birth of Jesus just simply based on shepherds being in the field? Yeah, and especially at night. Especially at night. <laughs> especially at night. Yeah, no, exactly. These exactly. are not and throwaway details. They're, they're every word here, and this is this now we're now we're talking rabbinically, every jot and tittle, yeah? Yeah. Uh, and it's there. And it's it's it gives realism to the text and somebody uh, who doesn't know Judea summer or winter can't write this story 
you can't. And, and, and the, the reality of the details here gives authenticity to, to the entire event. If they did not include details like out in the fields at night, or if they would have mixed it up or said something else, we would say, wait a minute, Luke, I can't trust you on this. Why should I trust you on the rest? So, so these details are here for a reason, let alone they, they can help us locate the event in time and place as well. And it's a village statement um, and it reflects a lifestyle pattern that is ageless in and around Bethlehem, other towns too, but Bethlehem certainly, which is the town here, it's ageless, of having a village and having shepherds. And in the um, ancient, I guess, modern world as well, there are shepherds that are, are semi-nomadic. The Bedouin is what the word we use today that tend to follow fixed grazing patterns over long distances. There aren't many left anymore. In Israel, technically, there aren't any left that can do that because of modern boundary lines and things, right? In Saudi, you have some still in Iraq, Western Iraq, you still will, Eastern Jordan. And the other kind of shepherds are, are we call village shepherds. They're, they live in town all the time, or most of the time, in, in places and in houses and something and then send the flocks out into regions around the town that are not being used for agriculture, not planted. Or they could be in the fields, depending on, on this growing season, right, if the crops are out. And those are the kinds of shepherds we, we have here. That they're out in the fields meanings, means that the fields are, and let's just take the word field, not meaning open space, but an agricultural spot. A kind of a literal use of it. Fields are, are typically agricultural for, for plantings, grain or barley in Bethlehem most often, as opposed to orchards, which would be the, you know, the summer crops, the vines and olive trees and things. But, but wheat and barley for Bethlehem uh, is good. And we do know that there are areas around where ancient Bethlehem was where the ground allows this Bethlehem itself on kind of a rocky uh, ridge line, and below it, especially to the east, eastward, uh, the ground flattens out a bit. The rainfall is still decent enough, and the soil is good enough for sowing seed and harvesting it, um, which is done, the sowing in November-ish, and the plants grow, uh, poke out of the ground December with the winter rains and then come up enough to be harvested at Passover time, Passover to Shavuot, the festival of, of weeks, which we read about a lot in the Bible as well. But the point is that, that winter and spring, the fields are full of crops, tender little shoots in December 25th, you know, good, good, yummy stuff that sheep would love to eat December 25th. But I, I, you don't want your sheep in the fields then. You don't want them there because that's exactly what you don't want them to eat, right? We have, we have age-old stories all around the world about range wars between shepherds and ranchers or, and farmers where the two don't, don't mix very well. Lifestyle differences and needs of the land are different and all sorts of things. And we have them actually in the Bible as well, overgrazing land and eating up the crops and stuff. We have in the Old Testament stories about it, Gideon and others. So if the shepherds are in the field, it has to be sometime other than 
than um, growing time, which basically would be, let's say, mid-summer to late fall, something around May to June, around up to September, October, something like that. The shepherds would be in the fields, partly to graze on the stubble, number one, partly to help to fertilize the ground a bit. Sheep tend to do that, sheep and goats. And, and, and all of that. Now, where would the shepherds be in the wintertime? And here you have some options. One would be you drive down eastward, east of Bethlehem, uh, a couple, three, four miles. Uh, the landscape is very different. It breaks apart because of the, the rock type and the soil quality and the amount of rainfall. is all inferior in, in every way and breaks into what the Bible calls Midbar grazing land, steppe land or grazing land. Today we call it the wilderness of Judea. And you can't plant and grow, but you can graze there, especially during the winter time uh, when it does get the rain that it does get. In the summertime it's tough going because the rain tapers off, but in the winter time you do. And so it's a nice movement where Sheep can be down in this area beyond the fields east when those hills do sprout green in the winter and up above behind you up toward Bethlehem where the crops are growing in the fields. And then as the rain tapers off and ends, the crops are harvested, the grass in the wilderness dries up. So you come back up to the fields where there's still good stubble to eat and, and, and so on. So shepherds in the fields tend to indicate summertime. Now, the Mishnah, I believe the Mishnah it is, speaks about fields at a place called Migdal Eder, the Tower of the Flock. That's a place name, which is in, associated with or close to Bethlehem. We think today it's maybe a place called Etam, where Solomon's pools are, some, someplace like that, where sheep were raised all year long in a careful way, kind of a coddled way, so they wouldn't get damaged, so that they could then be uh, kosher enough to be sacrificed in the temple according to rabbinic law and mosaic law. So they were not, you know, left to the wolves out in the wilderness all winter long, but up close, they were grazing. So it is possible the shepherds could have been in those places uh, instead, and that's an idea uh, that's possible during the, during, in December. What throws this over to probably it's not December, is the last uh, two words of the verse, by night, by night, right? That's really the key. Um, and I would, I would challenge anybody who thinks December 25th is the correct day to spend the night outdoors in Bethlehem <laughs> on December 25th. It is really cold and wet and probably rainy. And that's the last place you want to be or you want your sheep to be is out, outdoors. And I've heard local people say, it's just ridiculous to think this happened in December, simply because of that reason. There's just no, no way it possibly could. And that then throws the event, whether it's in the Migdal Eder <laughs> fields close to Bethlehem or not, it throws the event sometime around, well, between the, har the, the harvest and the, and, the, and the planting. So late uh, summer, late summer, early fall. Uh, instead, when you like to be out at night because it's hot otherwise in the daytime and it's nice to be out at night. 
This is one example of what I find all over the place in the Bible. And it's one of those places where once you know the land, you understand the logic. And this particular verse in Luke has a lived reality that makes sense. But if we are not as familiar with the land, it is just as easy to take on the European context that is portrayed in most of our Christmas carols and on those Christmas cards people send out, in which there is holly and snow and it's cold and a dark winter night. But according to the biblical text and the biblical writers in their context, we really should be thinking about a hot summer evening. As Dr. Wright mentions later in our conversation, he said it is true that having the correct image for this particular context may lead us to ask different questions, like why do we celebrate Christmas on December 25th? It's a good question. We didn't get into that in this interview, but it has a lot to do with church history and the spread of the gospel through Europe. I even think IBC has a couple magazine articles about this. I will try to find them and add them in the episode notes. Next week, we're going to talk about one more very significant contextual detail that Luke includes in his narrative. In fact, I think this one is more theologically significant than the one we just talked about. Be sure to like or follow this podcast on your favorite podcast app so that you do not miss the episode. If you want to explore more ways that the land can change how you read the Bible, you should enroll in the IBC course called Listening to the Land of the Bible. While you're there, just sign up as a student and start earning credit towards Israel Bible Center Certificate Program in Jewish Context and Culture. Thank you, Jeremy McDonald from Mason Jar Music for doing an amazing job editing, mixing, and adding in all good sounds. And thank you for hanging out with me and being curious about all things Bible-related. 